My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Hello, and welcome to the latest Bridges to the Future. I'm joined this week by two very special guests, Robert Polin and Noam Chomsky. But before I tell you more about them and I get to talk to them, I should perhaps warn you that towards the end of the programme, Noam Chomsky, arguably one of the world's leading public intellectuals, is joined by, well, what can I say, a rather angry dog. So if you're intrigued by the combination of a great global intellectual and a rather fierce dog, it's really worth listening to the end. Robert Polin is an American economist and professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a long-time and high-profile champion of social justice and environmental protection. Noam Chomsky, beyond his many academic achievements, is perhaps the most significant radical public intellectual of the last 60 years. It's an honour to have them joining me on Bridges to the Future. We're speaking just 10 days ahead of what is perhaps the most momentous election in modern American history, significant not just for the United States, but for the world. If, as the polls suggest Joe Biden wins, one of the expectations of his early days in office will be to carry forward some of the ideas of what has come to be called the Green New Deal. But will he go far enough? And indeed, what is far enough? This will be among the questions I'm sure we'll be discussing in the next 30 minutes. Robert, Noam, welcome to Bridges to the Future. Thank you. You've co-written this new book, Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, and you've written it in the form of an interview with the political economist Cronis Polychroniou. It may seem like an obvious question, but I just wanted to ask, before we got into the kind of core of the book, why was it you felt it was particularly important to write this book now? Well, we are facing a crisis of a kind that has never arisen in human history. We have a few years, a few decades at most, to make the decision as to whether organized human society will persist on Earth, whether millions of other species will survive. We are facing an impending environmental catastrophe. We have the means to deal with it. We do not have much time to employ those means. Nothing like this, again, has ever arisen in human history. It must be understood. We must pursue the opportunities available and quickly. That's all that it's necessary to say, in my opinion. Well, let's get straight then into the question we ask everybody on this podcast. It seems almost impertinent to ask two figures as great as you two this question, but that's what we ask everybody. So I'm going to ask it of you. So, Robert, Noam, what is your big idea for the world after the COVID pandemic has passed? Well, I think there's a single new idea. There are many. One of them 
is what I just mentioned, to make sure that we take control of the process that is leading to catastrophe if we ignore it. We must immediately take actions that will limit the destruction and terminate it and move on to a much better world. And a much better world can be described in many dimensions and many aspects. And Robert, the Green New Deal is widely known. It's been discussed for many years. Why did you want to kind of add, in a sense, to that argument? I read the book. It's very powerful. It's not written, in a sense, to convert people who weren't already keen on this idea. So were you seeking simply to add to the strength of the argument, or was it important to you to clarify elements of what kind of Green New Deal we need? I think all of the above. I think the the purpose, as I see it, was to certainly clarify the foundations of a Green New Deal. There will, of course, be variation among different people. There's variations in different countries. But the idea, as the title suggests, it's a global Green New Deal. So the idea of the global Green New Deal, in my view, the core idea is to get to zero emissions. And to get to zero emissions in a way that supports expanding job opportunities, good job opportunities, raising living standards, and reducing poverty dramatically, building a more egalitarian world at the same time as advancing ecological sanity. To me, that's the core of the Green New Deal. Everything else is a lot of technical detail or you know, specific things to specific countries or regions. But if we embrace that fundamental idea, what we find is that the Green New Deal is entirely workable now, starting today, and achieving zero emissions within 30 years, which is the target of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, and one of the points that people who aren't on the political left make about the Green New Deal, or the argument of the Green Movement more generally, is that they say, well, the reason you're so keen on environmentalism is it's a way of smuggling a left-wing agenda into the mainstream. Now, I suspect that's not a charge you're particularly worried about. If a left-wing agenda means what Pollan just described, a world in which we are not facing destruction, in which people have better jobs, in which we overcome poverty, then I don't see anything to apologize about a left-wing agenda in that sense. That just seems to be a human agenda. And Robert, for you, the Green New Deal is impossible without it taking place within the framework of, for example, a profound commitment to global social justice. Absolutely. Because, I mean, at the very minimum, the only way that we get emissions down to zero is if we get emissions down to zero everywhere. It can't just be that, okay, it's true that the United States, the European Union and China are responsible for roughly half of all emissions. So you could say, well, if they're responsible for the majority, then maybe the problem should just be solved in the United States, China, and the European Union. But note that if we say it's roughly half, the United States, China, and Europe is roughly half of all emissions, well, that still means we have the other half of emissions coming from everywhere else in the world. That means India, that means Brazil, that means South Africa, that means Sub-Saharan Africa, And if we want those countries to expand opportunity to raise living standards, the only way that they can do it without busting 
any carbon budget is for them to also embrace a Green New Deal. And it is probably the greatest benefits will accrue to low-income countries. So for example, if you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, roughly half of the rural population has zero access to electricity as of today. So the Green New Deal is a way through which we can deliver access to clean electricity, raise living standards, reduce work burdens for people in rural regions, improve food storage supplies, all the things that are basic to raising living standards, and at the same time, driving down emissions to zero. And do you have sympathy for those arguments that have been articulated in countries like India and South America to a certain extent as well, which is that it is not reasonable to expect these countries who are on the path of development not to be emitters as they catch up with, and there was a lot of catching up to do with the West, given that, you know, this is a problem created primarily by Western industrialization. Well, as it happens, I just gave a Zoom lecture to people in India yesterday. And of course, this question came up. The fact is, India can grow on the basis of expanding clean energy as their foundation and on the basis of expanding organic agriculture as opposed to industrial agriculture. So it's not a matter of growth, no growth. It's a matter of how India grows or how sub-Saharan Africa grows. And they can grow on the basis of a green economy. They can grow on the basis of renewable energy, clean energy, raising energy efficiency standards, improving public transportation and organic agriculture and defending forested areas. That's the core of the Green New Deal. And it works better. It works better in low income economies and they can still grow and expand living standards. Well, no, and that takes me to the question of finance. And I think the kind of very broad picture of the finance of the Green New Deal that you lay out in the book is broadly kind of 50% publicly funded and 50% privately funded. But I'm interested in your view of the role of capitalism in this. Clearly, it is capitalism, largely not exclusively, of course, because there's economic growth in non-capitalist systems as well, but it's capitalism that has driven this. It is the interests of big business that have fought action on climate change, particularly from the fossil fuel industry. But yet, as I think you acknowledge in the book, we are going to need capitalism, the dynamism of markets to some extent, to be part of of the solution. And indeed, capitalism is able to adapt itself to make profits from wherever it can. So tell me a bit more, Noam, about how we should understand the role of markets and capitalism in meeting this crisis. Well, first of all, we should bear in mind some questions about timescales. The crisis of impending environmental catastrophe has to be overcome within perhaps a decade or two. That doesn't mean that's when the catastrophe is going to come. It's growing. It doesn't come in an instant. But that's when the choices have to be made as to whether there will be an irreversible catastrophe. Now, within 10 or 20 years, we are not going to overthrow capitalist institutions. I think there's much that should be radically changed. I would go so far as to say that the entire concept of a job contract is illegitimate. People should control and own the conditions of their own lives. But that's not going to happen in 20 years. We can move towards that. And in fact, we have to recognize that the basic measures that will be taken 
will be within the framework of modified existing institutions. We can at the same time, in parallel, these are mutually supportive efforts, be moving to create better and more humane institutions. So take uh, what's called the magic of the market, which is not so magical in my opinion, but whatever we have of semi-market institutions in our present society, it can be adapted and modified to avert environmental catastrophe. That's the crucial point. So yes, there's much that should be changed, I think, in the nature of our society. It can be adapted in such ways as to overcome the crisis that we're facing to create a better world, to leave us with the opportunities of moving on to greater justice, greater freedom, the greater opportunity, and so on. So, Rob, I, you're an economist. I'd like to further explore this kind of question because you know one of the contradictions of America really is that you have a climate change denying president, hopefully for not much longer, but you've also got a you know huge growth in investment in clean energy in America. I noticed that. Seven of the eight states that have the largest share of the electricity from solar and wind are actually Republican or they're kind of borderline Republican Democrat states. So there's a kind of peculiar picture in America. So I guess there's two parts to my question, Robert. The first is, what is the kind of nature of the continuing market failure here, given that there does seem to be a genuine move of investment, for example, towards green energy? And secondly, what is the political opportunity that is presented by a different president? You know, this issue of climate is not a issue which distinguishes the thoughtful right and thoughtful left in Europe. It is an issue where there is broad consensus apart from the kind of lunatic fringes. So is there a kind of emergent consensus that could lead to radical change in America with a different person in the White House? I think that's a possibility. We can talk about what would happen under Biden. But the more basic question that you ask is really pertinent. The states that you're referring to where they have the higher proportion of renewable energy are the Midwestern and the mountain farm states. And those are basically states in which you've built up a reasonably significant share of wind farming. And it is the farmers that they put the turbines on their farms and they have another source of income. They're probably Republicans, but they are generating renewable electricity. So you look at states like South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, they're the ones that have the highest proportions of renewable energy supply. If we're talking about wind and solar, not hydro. Hydro power has been around for a long time. So the opportunity, of course, should be seen as right in front of our eyes, and it should be available for people at all levels of the economy. I should declare an interest here. I myself am a tiny green energy capitalist, and I have put together financing for solar installations and nonprofit projects and low-cost housing projects, been doing it for several years. And so one of the things you know, if you're either observing it or involved in it, as I am, there is this issue of just simple inertia, even with tax incentives and so forth. You know, right now, solar energy constitutes one half of 1% maybe of overall energy supply. So to get from one half of 1% to where we need it to be, 50, 60%, is just a very large project, even with incentives. And so that we need to get the financing structures 
in place. We need to have financing subsidized for clean energy, and we need to absolutely eliminate all subsidies for fossil fuel energy. We have to put limits. We have to put legal limits on the consumption of fossil fuel energy. Such They're called renewable portfolio standards here in the U.S., but like every year, every utility has to cut its burning of coal or natural gas by 5% per year, period. That's the law. And then they will start substituting renewable energy. So if you have those incentives in place, you get over this fact that we are operating now an energy infrastructure that is overwhelmingly dominated by fossil fuels. We just have to transition out of that. Reading the book, and in particular, the parts of the book that are about how it is this change is achieved, the kind of the politics of how it is we create a movement that can drive this level of change. I was kind of slightly reminded of a book I read many years ago that had a big influence on me, The Future of American Progressivism by Cornel West and Roberto Unger. And one of the things that West and Unger argue in that quite passionately is that we shouldn't see incrementalism and radicalism as enemies, that in a sense we need both an understanding of what the next practical steps should be as well as a big vision of how different things could be. Noam, do you think that that's the mindset we need to have to be enthusiastic about the next practical measures as well as having this kind of big vision? Or do you think that change just has to be much more revolutionary than that? There are certain things that are out of our control. The Arctic ice sheets are melting. The particles per million in the atmosphere are increasing. The sea levels are going to rise. All of these things are happening. We can't pretend they're not. We have to take steps to terminate the march to destruction. And at the same time, at the very same time, as Pollan has emphasized, we can be creating the conditions for a much better world. Better jobs, less poverty, more participation, the basis for going on to large-scale changes. We can't snap our fingers and say, I wish we had different institutions. They have to be built step by step. People have to come to understand how they contribute to their lives, how different ways of living can be more satisfying for ourselves, better for others, how we can work more in cooperation with mutual support, all of these changes of consciousness and ways of living, organizing our life, they all go on together. Meanwhile, the march to catastrophe continues unless we take firm measures to avert it. So I think those are just the conditions that we face. We have to pursue them all, and we can do that. They are within range, and each of us may have a picture of the kind of society we want to move towards, and that can be done while we are taking the measures which will create conditions in which the move forward to a society of greater justice and freedom can be established. Robert, what's your view of this relationship between, as it were, incremental change and radical change. Because, you know, I sit here in South London and I 
you know, maybe it's my age, maybe things are happening more slowly than I think. But if the government had said 10 years ago, we're going to move towards electric cars, I think there would have been a massive backlash because people didn't have electric cars. They'd not seen them being powered up. They weren't used to the points in the sidewalk where you can plug your car in. But now that's becoming more normal. And as these things become more normal, it's more possible for a government to set more stretching targets. So I guess in a sense, thinking of Joe Biden, the argument might be that rather than being very radical in terms of adopting the whole of the Green New Deal in the form that you've described it, and then risking a kind of backlash, that in a sense, what one needs is to create momentum and then to have a capacity to keep pushing and keep pushing as people become more used to the fact that in the end, most of the things we need to adapt to to have a sustainable world are actually things which don't require us to damage our standard of living or our lifestyle. In fact, quite the reverse. Well, yeah. In fact, none of the things entail reducing living standards at all, with the exception of the impact on the workers and communities that are dependent right now on the fossil fuel industry. So one part of the Green New Deal that has to be central, that is often not emphasized, is a just transition for the workers and communities that will be negatively affected. I myself just put out a study for the state of Ohio day before yesterday on exactly this question. So the Appalachian states in the United States have a relatively high proportion of workers and communities that are dependent on the fossil fuel industry. We need to make sure these people are treated fairly and they are transitioned into other jobs and there's new investment opportunities in the region. So that's part of the story. Of course, there's no other way other than step-by-step to transition to an entirely different energy infrastructure. But there are some critical things that need to be dealt with firmly right from the get-go, and there will be some very, very serious differences. And just to point out one that's come up a lot in the presidential campaign is the position of Biden and Kamala Harris with respect to fracking, that is drilling for natural gas through horizontal drilling, they're in favor of it. It's disastrous. It cannot be allowed to continue. And then once you commit to it now, it's not like if we start expanding fracking operations, we're going to shut them down in three years. They're there. And the only conceivable way that you can expand fracking and keep burning natural gas and hit anything like an emission reduction target is if you then introduce this technology called carbon capture, which is a totally unproven technology, which entails literally capturing the carbon that comes out of burning the fossil fuels and then burying it underground for all eternity. It is really insane, and it is a much simpler, proven way to go is to expand renewable energy, solar, wind, geothermal, and greatly increase efficiency. So that is a point on which there is going to be a huge amount of debate, assuming the Democrats come in, as to whether we're pursuing a clean, non-emissions energy technologies based on renewable energy and efficiency or whether it's going to be on fossil fuels, carbon capture and nuclear power. 
And this is a point, Noam, that you make in the book. You emphasise a couple of times the importance of the labour movement in all of this. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, we look now at the trade union movement in most parts of the world, and it's deeply committed to the agenda of diversity and inclusion and equality. But of course, it wasn't always the case. There were times in British history, I guess, also in American history, where a male-dominated trade union movement was ambivalent about equal pay for women, or where a white-dominated trade union movement suffered from racism. There were strikes in Britain in the 1960s against migrants. But when the labour movement moved to a position of supporting diversity and equality, that's powerful. And in America, to an extent, it's been blue-collar workers who've been most resistant to some of the arguments for action on sustainability because of the risk to jobs. So say a little more about the importance of the labour movement in America and globally in building the coalition for action around the Green New Deal. Well, Traditionally, over the years, the labor movement has been at the cutting edge of moves for social reform and social change. The neoliberal period's first moves, both Reagan and Thatcher, their first moves were to try to destroy the labor movement. And that has been picked up by the corporate sector. And in fact, they have succeeded in severely weakening labor movements, which means weakening the hope for progressive social change. Now, what about the unions? The main force for addressing the environmental crisis 40 years ago was the labor unions, and not only just the labor unions, but the union of oil, chemical, and atomic workers, Tony Mizaki's oil, chemical union. That was the workforce that was in front, pressing hard for dealing with the environmental crisis. It was led by Tony Mazaki, one of the first and most prominent environmentalists. And that's understandable. They're the ones on the front lines. They're the ones who are suffering directly from methane emissions and other pollution. They want to get them under control as well as to get a better life for their families, their communities, and the world in general. So there's no reason whatsoever why the union shouldn't be in the forefront of dealing with this imminent crisis, creating better jobs, more jobs, and a better life in the interests of working people. In the past, they have been in the forefront of pressing for it. They can be again today. Robert, I want to pick this up with you before I turn to Noam for a final question because we're running out of time. But in the book, you're slightly hesitant in your support for, for example, Extinction Rebellion, because you recognise the danger that the case for the Green New Deal can be portrayed as a kind of middle-class elite cause that doesn't empathise with or understand the challenges facing working-class people who might, for example, be in industries that could be at threat from a green transformation. And you talk about Extinction Rebellion and and civil disobedience as a kind of micro-example of that, which is that if it stops people, if demonstrations, we've seen this in London, closing bridges or streets, stop people going to work or being to go to a hospital appointment or whatever, it can undermine the capacity for kind of wide social solidarity on this issue. And clearly, if you do have a president who does start to take forward this agenda, presumably the right backlash will be, as it has been in France to a certain extent, to portray environmentalism as a kind of elite concern. That's a real concern. And, you know, your example that you cite in France, when uh, President Macron introduced a carbon tax idea, 
and was resisted vehemently and created a whole movement that became known as the Yellow Vest Movement. And their slogan was, well, you know, yes, we want to save the world and the environment, but we also want to put food on our table. So the problem that emerged in France really encapsulates the broader issue, which is, yes, we need to raise prices and basically eliminate fossil fuels, but you can't do it on the backs of working people and the poor. So if you're going to have a carbon tax, for example, that raises the prices of oil, coal, and natural gas that people consume every day, the revenues from the tax have to be redistributed back to people, at least to middle class and low income people, so that they do not experience a loss of their living standard, a decline, and maybe even improve their living standard through the redistribution of the tax revenue. And that issue can be just generalized. As I just mentioned, I'll just emphasize a bit more briefly. The idea of a just transition for the workers and communities that will be, they are connected to the fossil fuel industry. And they're not that many. You know, in Greece, for example, one of the countries I've studied, we're looking at a total of 6,000 people who are in the coal mining industry. And so we can transition those 6,000 people into other jobs. And in their communities, we can invest in land cleanup, reclamation, and repurposing the land. It's being done reasonably well in Germany now. So that's the framework. And I've been in a lot of discussions with people and unions in the fossil fuel industry, and they say, oh, yes, you've got your program, Professor, fine, but we know that it's never going to get implemented, the transition program, because the environmentalists don't care about us. And, you know, unfortunately, there's some truth in that, and we have to overcome that. And so we have to build solidarity around working people's interests, along with saving the planet. And that, of course, goes to the heart of the argument for the Green New Deal. I could carry on talking to the two of you for hours, but it's time for a kind of final question. And you've been very active for decades in international affairs, in arguing on behalf of the plight of oppressed people, arguing powerfully against forms of colonialism and exploitation. I'm interested in what you think the Green New Deal means for international institutions, for global governance, an issue, of course, which has come up in relation to COVID and where we have seen the weakness of those kinds of global institutions and mechanisms. Does the global Green New Deal require us to develop new global governance institutions? And if we do, can we trust those institutions to bring justice? First of all, there's one crucial point which Robert Pollan has already emphasized. There are no boundaries to global warming. It's everywhere. It's a case where international solidarity is absolutely essential. Mutual support is essential. We have to deal with our various problems at home. We have to assist others, say, in India, in Africa, in Latin America. We have to help them deal with their problems for our own interest. If they don't do it, we're the ones who will collapse along with everyone else. Internationalism is just an essential characteristic of the move towards salvation from this crisis. And in fact, there are organizations actually working on it. Right now, the United Nations has an international conference on biodiversity. Biodiversity is a very significant problem. Kew Gardens just found that about 40% of 
plant species are disappearing, insects sharply declining. Human life and the life of other species cannot continue if that persists. So that conference is attempting to deal with these questions. And for people in the United States, there's a particular problem because there is one country that's refusing to participate, the United States. And I think there's 160 or 170 other countries participating. So we have to overcome that block. We have to join with the rest of the world in approaching problems which are lethal and devastating for all of us. And together, with mutual support and mutual aid, we can create a much better world for everyone. Will new governing institutions develop out of this? Well, we'll see what's needed to move forward. Should we put our trust in them? Never. You don't ever put your trust in leadership. You keep their feet to the fire. Maybe you pick representatives, but then you continue with what real politics consists of, constant activism and engagement to ensure that they fulfill promises, that they pursue the kinds of programs that a, an informed, engaged public uh, properly demands, but certainly not put trust in them and that's go home. Well, Noam Chomsky, Robert Pollin, it's been fantastic to talk to you. We've been joined in our conversation towards the end with a, a canine voice adding to the intensity of your argument there, Noam. So your book, Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, has been published. I would recommend it. It's readable, persuasive and inspiring. And now is the time to read it. And notwithstanding the reservations I'm sure that both of you have and have implied about Joe Biden, it does seem to me that at least to have an American president who recognises the science of climate change would be a great step forward. Thank you both for joining me. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith. <laughs>